The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Well, today is our last week in a series we've been in for the last couple months called Simple. Uh, And in this series, what we've tried to do is is bring clarity to the key aspects of the Christian faith that can sometimes get cloudy. Uh, And so, so throughout this series, we've talked about Jesus, and then we talked about the gospel and the law and the church. Uh, And last week, we really tried to explore a a full view of of life, what a Christian view of life is. Uh, Well, today we're going to look at the other end of that spectrum, uh, and we're going to get a Christian view of death. Uh, Now, I won't lie to you, when I outlined this series several months ago, uh, I put death down as a topic we'd explore for a message, uh, but I just hope that it wouldn't be our topic on our first Sunday in our new space, right? No one wants to talk about death on the first Sunday in a new space. But you know what they say. You want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Uh, so here we are talking about death. And it's an uncomfortable topic, isn't it? Right? Like, like we don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. We just, we just want to pretend it's not there. We just don't want it ever crossing our minds. For example, uh, this past year, one of my favorite artists, Sufjan Stevens, released a new album called Carrie and Lowell. And this album is really him kind of processing the death of his mother Uh, And he came to Austin earlier this year uh, and and for touring with this album. My wife Melissa and I went to go see him at at Bass Concert Hall down on UT's campus. Uh, And the show was great, right? But sitting next to me at the show was that couple, right? Like, you know that couple, right? Like, like Sufjan Stevens, he's he's an indie folk artist. And the couple sitting next to me just so happened to be experts on indie folk music. And so throughout the entire concert, they just kept talking and talking and talking. They sounded so pretentious about everything. Like it was driving me nuts, right? I'd ask them, hey, what are you guys talking about? Oh, you wouldn't understand, right? It was terrible. Wouldn't stop talking. But then Sufjan played this song. It's called The Fourth of July. And he played this song. And at, at the end of the song, there's this lyric. And it goes like this. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. And for the concert, he repeated that line like 50 times, just again and again and again. We're all going to die. And I looked over at the chatty Cathy's sitting next to me, and that shut them up, right? They were quiet as church mice then, right? Looking mortified, just how I like it. Uh, But that's the nature of a lyric like that, right? Some dude sings, we're all going to die again and again and again, and you get real quiet real quick because we know it's true. And if we're honest, even as Christians, for many of us, that idea that we're all going to die is a scary truth. So the question we ask today is, how does the Christian faith approach death? And what I want to do with our text for today is to have it sort of serve as an outline for Christians in relation to death. And so here's what that's going to look like. First, we're going to deconstruct death, then we'll reconstruct death, and then finally, we'll celebrate victory in Jesus. Deconstruct death, reconstruct death, victory in Jesus. All right, so let's go. Let's deconstruct death. Look with me at verse 35. It says this. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, I I bring this verse up just to point the fact of the question out to you. The, The question that the author of this text, the Apostle Paul, is answering, the question he's answering is this. How are the dead raised? That's the question being asked him. And here's why I want to focus on that. Uh, I've been an ordained pastor for three years now, over three years now. Uh, But I've been in some form of of leadership in ministry for pretty close to a decade now. 
Uh, and in the course of that time, I have been asked many questions. I've been asked many questions about death. But I have never once been asked, how are the dead raised? And you know why? Because when people in the 21st century uh, in America, the church in the 21st century in America, think about what happens when you die, our thoughts about life after death are shaped largely by medieval art, Dante's Inferno, pop culture, and, and hallmark sentimentalism, right? And, and all of that stuff is mostly based on Platonic philosophy and not on Scripture. And so oftentimes in our culture, what we think of life after death, we, we get this picture of floating around on puffy clouds with wings and playing little harps. And so often we think that's it. You die, your soul floats away, and you either go to heaven and you float around for eternity, or you go to hell and you run away from little red guys with pitchforks for eternity. But that just isn't how the Bible talks about life after death. It just isn't. See, for the first Christians, the hope for life after death wasn't about some sort of disembodied evacuation from earth to heaven. It wasn't about your soul escaping this body. The hope for life after death was to literally, physically rise from the dead to a renewed earth, to a creation invaded and healed by the presence of heaven, healed by the presence of God. The first Christians were most concerned with what one theologian calls life after life after death. Now I say that, and if you've been around here, that makes sense to you, right? I talk about this idea of resurrection a lot here, perhaps too much, some of you might think, right? We confess it in the creed every week, but it still leaves this nagging question for many of us, I would think. Say, okay, Gabe, resurrection of the dead, I get your little rant there, but that hasn't happened yet, and you're saying our pop culture images of the afterlife aren't accurate, but where are my dead loved ones right now? And that's a fair, that's a fair question. Like, for example, my... Wife Melissa is not here this weekend because she's singing at a funeral for her uncle. If the resurrection of the dead hasn't happened yet, where is he? One thing our culture gets right is that at death, the soul does separate from the body. And what we see in Scripture is that those who are in Christ are with him in what he calls paradise, right? This is what Jesus says to the thief on the cross. And this is what Paul references in Philippians 1. It's better for me to be with Christ. That's what he says. And Jesus says to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so our loved ones in Christ, their souls are at peace with their Savior. But that isn't the end of the story. That isn't the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that they one day too will rise again in a new body, in a new heavens, and a new earth. And so how does that work? How does the resurrection work? Well, point two, let's reconstruct death. Look with me at verses 42 to 45. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so Paul says, okay, so, so how does a body rise again? Well, first he says, well, it's not the exact same body you have right now, because that's perishable, right? We know this. We know that we rot, right? We know that. We've all seen the Lion King, right? Our bodies decay, and they become the grass, 
and the antelope eat the grass, Simba, right? And so Paul says, obviously, your natural body, it fades away. But verse 44, he says, you are raised in a spiritual body. But this is important to get. Spiritual does not mean non-material. See, what Paul's doing here is he's talking about how the body is animated. He's talking about how it's brought to life. And he says, in the new heavens and the new earth, your body, you will get a new body, and it will be animated by the Spirit, not merely your own psyche like it is right now. And then in verse 45, he kicks it back to creation and says, Adam who was the first person made in the image of God, he was given life, and because of that, we all live as image bearers of God, that we've been created in a unique way to reflect God's glory in a unique way. But then he adds, and the last Adam, Jesus, is a life-giving spirit, referencing the fact that because Jesus ascended into heaven, he now sends a spirit into all who know him, and because of that, we have life eternal with him. Now track this with me. Paul says that in the resurrection of the dead, our soul will be united with a body empowered by the Spirit of God, and we will be the image bearers of God that we are on this side of eternity, only will be perfected in Christ because we'll be animated by the Spirit. Now notice the uniqueness of this hope. Listen, what God's Word says is this. When you die, you don't become a drop in an ocean. You don't reincarnate as something else. You don't lose who you are. When you die, you're transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit into the best of who you are in Christ. Like, how amazing is that? Let me just tease out an implication of that for you. See, because of this hope in Scripture, the Christian can't have FOMO. You know what FOMO is, right? Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. You're familiar with it. You've, you've had it happen to you. Fear of missing out. You've experienced it. This is what happens. You, you look on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever your thing is, uh, and you see your friends, and you see their travels and their perfect kids and their good jobs and the great food they cooked and all the fun they're having and all the fun they're having without you, and you just start thinking, man, like what am I doing with my life? I'm missing out on so much. I'm not doing something that I should be doing. I must not be doing something right. Everyone else is out there living carpe diem season of the day, and I'm just here watching all of Gilmore Girls on Netflix again. Right? You know this happens to you. FOMO. Like, there's seriously, there, there's psychiatric and, and sociological studies on this modern phenomenon. It's fascinating. What happens is so many people beat themselves up, or they get anxious, or they go to extreme lengths or whatever because they just might miss something in this world. They just might not get everything they wanted to in this life. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for carpe diem, says the day. All right, but hear this, church. If you are in Christ, you will miss out on nothing. If you're in Christ, you'll miss out on nothing. There is an eternity in a renewed earth that awaits you. You're not going to miss anything. And so you don't have to sweat it because death is not the end. But wait, there's more. Look with me at verses 51 to 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So our text says there's a moment. 
a moment when the trumpet sounds, when the dead are raised, when things change. And what's this moment he's talking about? He's talking about what we call Judgment Day. This idea that one day every single person will stand before God and have to give an account for his or her life. And they'll be judged by God. Guilty or innocent. Did you do what you're supposed to do or not? And no one will get away with anything. And I realize I say this and I realize that this idea about a judgment day is at best confusing and at worst terribly offensive to a modern person. And, and I can hear the objections. Yeah, pastor, all right. Listen, I don't, I don't believe in a God who judges. Right? I just believe in a God of love. He just loves and accept us, accepts us. Listen, I believe in a God of love too. But a God of love necessitates a God of judgment. It just does. Here's what I mean. Four years ago, my brother-in-law Tyler went to Ghana to, to work in an orphanage for a few months. And in order to do this, to go on this trip and, and serve in this orphanage, he quit his job and he sold his car and he focused his entire life and energy on getting to Ghana and loving these, these little orphan kids. But less than two weeks into his stay, some thugs broke into the orphanage and they beat up the pastor who was on site. They stole my brother-in-law's laptop and his phone and his passport and an offering that he brought for the orphanage. Not only that, these guys, they stole all the money that this orphanage had on site. And guess what? They got away with the whole thing. Now, I don't know about you, but my heart just cries out against that whole situation, right? Like, who in the world steals money from orphans? Like, how sick in the head do you have to be to do something like that? See, our hearts crave justice. When we see people hurt and wrong others through their own selfishness and greed, we want them to meet justice. Why? Because we love people. And when people hurt people, we expect justice to be served. Ah, but here's the reality, friends. Each one of us has hurt and wronged others in our own selfishness. Each one of us has pursued our own interests at the expense of others. We haven't shown self-sacrificial love for others. but We have instead pursued our own ends at the expense of others. And see, we want justice for the wrong things other people do, but we don't want it for ourselves. But see, the transcendent God calls all people to account. Author Becky Piper puts it like this. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. And so our text says, there will be a day when we are all raised to new life and we're judged by God, which at face value, if you think about it, is terrifying if we're honest with ourselves, right? But look at how Paul responds to this notion, verses 54 to 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And so how does Paul respond to judgment day? He breaks into song. What, like, how does that work? 
I mean, if I think about being judged by what I've done and haven't done, like, let's just forget God's transcendent moral law. Let me just go postmodern on you. Let's just say I'm judged by my own moral code, right? Whatever my standard is. I don't even live up to that. I don't live up to my own standards, and you don't live up to yours either, let alone God's. So how can Paul be so happy about this judgment day? Because for him, it's already happened. And he's already been declared innocent. How's that work? Point three. Look with me at verses 56 to 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 56, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. In other words, he says, Death hurts, death stings, because we sin. And through God's law, that's how we know we sin. And so we know we're going to face judgment. And because we know we're going to face judgment, death stings. It's scary. But then he says, verse 57, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does that work? How do we get victory through Jesus Christ? Here's how. On the cross... God's judgment day justice against sin falls on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, one of my favorite passages, says this. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, on the cross, Jesus takes on all the sins of the world. He takes on all your sin, your lustful heart, your greed, your bitterness, the pain you've caused others, the hurtful words you've spoken, your apathy towards the suffering, whatever your deal is, Jesus takes your sin into himself on the cross. He becomes sin for you. And on the cross, Jesus takes God's judgment day justice, and he's declared guilty. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's guilty. He's cut off. He's absent from God. The word for being absent from God is hell. Jesus is guilty. Jesus goes through hell. He lays his life out to take on God's judgment against sin. His life is the check paid for the sins of the world. But here's the deal. True victory came three days later when he rose from the dead. Because what that means for you and me is that the check cleared. And Jesus' invitation to you today is to put your trust in him. To put yourself in solidarity with him. He says, I'll take your guilt, you take my innocence. I'll take your hell, you take my heaven. I'll take your death, you take my life. There is a judgment day. You will face God, and there's one of two ways you can face him. Either you can stand on your own flawed record, or you can stand in Jesus' perfect record. You can take his record and share in his victory. Won't you do that? His victory is for you. So about a year ago, my wife, Melissa's Aunt Kathy, died. Uh, and now Melissa's mom, she has seven brothers and sisters. And, uh, and when Aunt Kathy died, she was, she was the first to go of, of the whole bunch. Um, and they, they asked me to do the funeral. And so we, we flew up, and I went to go visit with the family and talk about the funeral arrangements. We flew up to Wisconsin. And, and I remember walking into 
uh, Melissa's grandparents' living room, and I'll, and I'll just never forget this. I saw Kathy's dad there, Melissa's grandpa, and I said, how are you doing? And this man whose only words to me up until that point were, if you're from Detroit, where's your gun, right? This guy, that's the only thing he'd ever said to me. This guy just started weeping. And he said, how do you think I'm doing? This isn't how it's supposed to be. I'm not supposed to bury my daughter. And the truth is, he's right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. We weren't made to die. We were made for life. And what we have in our Savior Jesus is the hope of new life. The hope of life after life after death. That this is not the end of the story. But that anybody, anywhere who puts their trust in Jesus has an eternity beyond imagination that awaits them. And that includes you. Let me just close with this. Um, in, in early 1530, the, the great reformer, my boy, Martin Luther, uh, his father became gravely ill. Uh, but before his father died that May, Luther was actually able to write a letter of comfort to him. And then just a year after his father's death, Luther's mom became quite sick. And so he wrote her a letter of comfort as well. Uh, and we have copies of both these letters, these letters that, that he wrote to his parents on their deathbeds. It's pretty amazing. And I got to read both of them this week. Uh, and they're a little different, but they share two common themes. They share a deep hatred of death, that it's an enemy, that, that we don't like it, it's bad. But then they also share this theme of a total trust in the victory of Jesus Christ over death. And just listen to these words from Luther's letter to his mom. He says this, Secondly, dear mother, you know the real basis and foundation of your salvation, on which you must rest your confidence in this and all troubles. Namely, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone who will not waver or fail us, nor allow us to sink and perish. For he is the Savior and is called the Savior of all poor sinners, of all who face tribulation and death, of all who rely on him and call on his name. Listen, church, in the face of death in this world, in the face of the death of your loved ones, and one day in the face of your own death, Rest your confidence in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. He will not waver or fail you, nor allow you to sink or perish, for he is the Savior, and in him you have victory over death. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that because of you we have hope for resurrection. We have hope for life after life after death, that you became sin for us, that we stand before the God of the universe and we are declared innocent because you were declared guilty. Help us to find our rest in you and to claim our victory in you. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.